The reputation of Hamilton Baptist has gone forth over many years and it's for that reason I count it a great privilege to be with you this evening and bring to you the Word of God. I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what isn't bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Amen. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. I've just taken some time out and been on holiday. And started again the ministry at Trinity Postle and Henry Drummond 
today. And you would have thought after 27 years it would be like falling off a log. The same old, same old, done it before, do it again. But for me, I always feel I need to go right back to first principles. Never to make an assumption. To go right back to the basics of the gospel. If you were to look at the world around about us, you would see, well, there's nothing really positive to say. And we live in a day like the prophet Isaiah did. I don't suppose ours is as bad as his day. He was, after all, as tradition says, sawn in two. And I don't suppose many of us would be sawn in two. But we look at the days in which we live and think the Christian faith is just a dim memory in Britain. And any Christian influence seems to be such a long time ago, we live in just a totally different era. What can I say now? I've been there so many years and nobody seems to be listening. What am I supposed to say now? And Isaiah chapter 55 tells us precisely what to do and why. We have to go on preaching the free grace of God in the gospel. Because that is what he appointed. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Taking people to the very cross of Jesus Christ. Until such time as we see the church renewed and there is a great awakening. You see salvation was never ever. The Old Testament was law and the New Testament is gospel. It was all gospel. Right from the beginning. Salvation was never what you have to do. What you have to achieve. What you bring. And I'm very grateful to God. That so often it's not what you feel. Salvation is all. Always about the one in whom you put your trust. And that's where I want us to be this evening. Once again, reviewing our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reviewing how much we need to lean upon him. Wherever God has put you, whatever God has asked of you, wherever God has sent you, there, with that unchanging grace and favour of God. So I hope Isaiah 55 is familiar to you. So often when we take up our Bibles and look at the Old Testament, it just seems to be a whole load of verses put together and we wonder what's going on. So if I can just analyse it for you just for a moment... In the way that I see Isaiah 55 shaped. In verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. Of course there is the one who's shouting, come all you who are thirsty. And there we have a preacher. Preaching the grace of God. All of a sudden, halfway through verse 2. Instead of a preacher speaking about something else. Someone says, come to me. And there I think, in the midst of preaching, 
As Nathan prayed earlier on today, it's not the preacher who's heard, but the living God whose voice is being listened to. And God is addressing us. And the Lord himself speaks until the end of verse 5. So here we have a preacher in verses 1 and 2, and the Lord himself addressing us in verses 2 to 5. Then we come to verses 6 and 7. Two verses I had to learn in Trinity Road Chapel in London. And let me say it was in the authorised version. So when I quote this it is. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. And again do you hear the sound of someone preaching the gospel? To a company like ourselves? And then in verse 8 to the end. We have someone else speaking who just happens to be the one who's saying but this is my word that you're listening to and my thought that I'm declaring to you and God himself is addressing us do you see how the passage is shaping out here we have someone who's preaching yes but who's addressing God's people who's addressing the world around about three times we have the imperative come verses one and then in verses two to five we have, you've got to come to me, listen to me, and I'll make you a promise, I'll give you an eternal covenant. And then strangely, in verses 4 and 5, when the Lord is speaking to you about this gospel that you're listening to, he says, I have made somebody else a witness. In verse 4. And then in verse 5, instead of merely telling you and me that someone else is the gospel, in verse 5 he turns to address that one. You will summon nations you do not know. And then in verses 6 and 7, you have the, the imperative seek and forsake and return. They're matched in verses 8 and 9 by God declaring us his mind. In verses 10 and 11, which today is such an encouragement, you might feel so deflated when having proclaimed the gospel there's no response and you wonder, is the word of God effective? And the Lord says, my word is always effective. Isn't that just such an encouragement? He's always achieving his purposes. And in verses 12 and 13, he's speaking to you about your own experience of the gospel. What God is going to bring into your life once you have been at the cross. Once you've placed your faith and trust in the living Lord Jesus Christ. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. Isn't that the way we hear the gospel? Someone's preaching. And all of a sudden, we discern something totally different. It's when we read the Bible and we think, this isn't just a gospel writer speaking to me. This is the living God addressing me. And that great transaction is done. And we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the way the thing works out, isn't it? But when the gospel is proclaimed, it is always free. 
we had in mind this morning. When in our congregation, through Tear Fund and other agencies, we hear of some dreadful happening in the world, like a tsunami or an earthquake, a drought or famine, we get news about it and we say there are lots of people in desperate need of our help. What we do is have a collection of money. And then we send that money to whatever agency that we're supporting. And they purchase what is needed by those in desperate need. And all of that is transported out to Nepal and Africa or wherever it is. And they're able to give gratis to those who have absolutely nothing. And it's such a privilege, isn't it, to give to people in need and say, you don't, I know you don't have anything to purchase this with. This is yours free. But it's never really free, is it? Someone has to pay the cost. We don't find that out in chapter 55. Because Isaiah has spent a lot of time declaring to us the price of our salvation. And we're going to be thinking about that just later on. Someone paid the greatest price. And who was that? Well, you could see it from the point of view of your heavenly father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a cost. Would you do that for other people who are rebels and sinners who hated you? I will give the greatest gift heaven possesses. You could see it from the point of view of the Lord Jesus Christ. How humiliating. I created everything. Why would I become part of that creation? And yet he was born in Bethlehem. And he lived just like you and me. And he went to the cross in utter shame and died on that cross in absolute humiliation what a cost it's wonderful to proclaim the gospel of God's free grace but how does it change you to remember the cost of your salvation if your saviour humbled himself to obedience, to death upon a cross. What are you prepared to do for God in this day and generation? Do you remember what the missionaries used to say? If he gave himself for me, I will give myself Absolutely for him. So this evening we're just very briefly going to be thinking about the preacher. And then we're going to be thinking about the Lord God. And then we're going to be thinking about the price paid. 
We're simply going to take ourselves back again to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to gaze up at the one who is our saviour. But it's so strange if we're doing that that Isaiah begins with a street vendor calling to absolutely anybody. It's absolutely free. You can get wine and you can get milk and you can get water. It's absolutely free. You don't need to pay any money for this. I mean, how many street vendors would do that? But here he is. The first thing that Isaiah wants you to understand about the gospel, it is that it's absolutely free. No money. Without money. You spend money on what's useless. This is absolutely free. There's the joy of the gospel. And whenever the invitation goes out, the first thing that's said is, well, you know, this is going to cost you money. You need to do something. You've got to be someone. You've got to bring something to God to get God on your side. If we go right back to the beginning, Cain thought he could do that. Look at what I've cultivated. Look at what I've grown. Look what I've done for you. I'm going to bring you this great offering to you. The best I can do. And God says that's not the offering I'm looking for. Why is it that we find that free gift of God's grace so difficult to receive? It's because we don't want God to be our debtor. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry? There were those guys who were lepers and they wanted to be cleansed. Oh yes, but it'll cost you. I've got lots of bills to pay. I've got lots of things to do. I've got lots of other people to, to heal. It'll cost you. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ saying to Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus had died, I know that you got a family heirloom. That alabaster jar of very costly ointment about a, a year's wages, if not more, will do a trade. Just imagine if having fed 5,000 people, he sent the disciples around with the 12 baskets and said, now take up a collection, I'm in need. Anything and everything the Lord Jesus Christ did was so that we would know that there is no cost involved. The prodigal son wanted to have his father's money and spend it as he wished. And you remember how he spent it. Totally wasted it on things that would never satisfy. And ultimately he was left eating pig swill. He wasted everything. But what high living he had when he was wasting everything. And this preacher says, this is absolutely free. I want you to understand that this gospel that I'm proclaiming to you is exactly what you need. It's like the milk for babies. It's the exact nourishment that will do you the best good. It's like wine. It'll bring you joy and gladness. It's like water. It will bring you cleansing. But what is the gospel that's always proclaimed? 
verses 6 and 7. If you've never committed it to memory, you really do need to do so. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. There's the gospel. When this preacher was standing on the street corner, you can just imagine Isaiah in his day with exactly this message. As evangelists and pastors and teachers have always done, proclaiming this message, it is to those who are evil and wicked, to those who have forsaken the ways of God, who are rebels and sinners, it's to them that this gospel comes. And we identify ourselves immediately with these people. Why? Because if God is coming down, the God who is, as Isaiah said in chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. The first thing that we become aware of is our utter unworthiness. Our very character and personality begins to disintegrate before this holy God. And we know that we're wicked. We know that we're wayward. We know that we are evil men and women who've, thought, who've turned our thoughts against God. We know what we are. What are the thoughts of a wicked man? The thoughts of a wicked man say about God... He's the kind of God who is so bad, you really know that he's a bad-tempered person who simply doesn't want to know you. He's the kind of God who wants you as a puppet. He's the kind of God who is just an evil taskmaster. And isn't that what sometimes erupts within our soul when we know a guilt and a, and a fear that we're in the presence of a holy God? Or sometimes we say, well, I know God is that kind of God, but I can do it myself. I'm a self-made man. God will have to accept me because I've achieved this. But we know in the presence of God we're wicked, sinful, evil men and women. But at the same time that we're taken by the Spirit of God to know ourselves, we come to know God. God is compassionate and merciful. And when we come to him seeking the Lord while he may be found, calling upon him while he is near, what do we find? Mercy. And abundant pardon. Isn't that exactly what we need to experience ourselves? Not merely a miserly, well, I suppose I'll have to do something for this kind of guy. But someone who lavishes upon you his love and his grace and his goodness. We're told of what we really are. And we're told of what God really is. And Isaiah says this is absolutely free. You want pardon? You will receive it freely. 
you want the grace of God, he will lavish it upon you. And those times when in our lives we say the Lord's going to have to reconfigure. I've taken a wrong turning. I've fallen flat on my face. Will God ever receive me back? When we seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him when he is near. Don't you find it so wonderful that you'll find abundant pardon? Well, if that's preaching, and that's what we're asked to proclaim day in, day out to the world in which we live, is that not just a kind of whistling in the wind? I mean, how can you base that upon anything firm? And what does this particular passage tell us about the certainty of that gospel? Preaching is based, says Isaiah in these verses, upon the plan and the purpose of God. Can you, in, in the second place, when we're thinking about the Lord, hear that preacher preaching, come to the waters, come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. And then all of a sudden we hear that other voice, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight <coughs> in the richest affair. And the words are just so much echoing what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. Have you read that particular bit in Ephesians chapter 2? Where the Apostle Paul says, He came preaching peace. That is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came preaching peace to those who are far off. And you ask yourself, if ever you ask daft questions of yourself like I do, when did God ever go to Ephesus to preach the gospel? He went to Ephesus to preach the gospel when Paul went to preach the gospel. And the experience of the Ephesian Christians was precisely what we're reading here. Here was the evangelist speaking and the Lord was addressing them, come to me. And the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing them, come to me. And when you listen to where the gospel is being preached, where the word of God is being preached, the word of God is being heard. And that word of God is not merely platitudes, but a person. And the only person who is ever the subject of gospel preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it always was. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I'm going to send a man who will crush the serpent's head. And if from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 you take your eye off the ball, you don't know that you're supposed to be looking for someone who's going to come. A man who will achieve the work of God. The son of Abraham. The son of Judah. The son of David. And that son of David... In verse 3, we'll bring in not only an everlasting covenant, but the faithful, faithful, steadfast love of the promise to David will be ours. 
that God is going to establish the kingdom of God and he's going to reign on that eternal throne. So if we're proclaiming a person, we're proclaiming a person whom God himself appointed. Verse 4 is addressed to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that I've made him a witness. And when he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's going to come into the world, I will summon, you will summon the nations you do not know. You'll preach to them yourself. And when we say, yes, but in our day and generation, the gospel seems to be so ineffective. Nobody's responding. Verses 8 and 9 say, the reason that gospel is preached in that way is because that's my thought. That's what I want to be proclaimed. That is what the gospel is. And when we complain to the Lord, it seems so ineffective in our day and generation. The Lord says, my word is always effective. Always effective. Do you know the greatest tragedy that you can read? We read it in the Bible. The greatest tragedy is like when the Lord Jesus Christ stands before Herod. The Herod who had heard John the Baptist preaching year in, year out. The Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist on a mere whim. And when Jesus stood before that same Herod, he wasn't silent because he was scared of Herod. He was silent because God had nothing more to say to Herod. Isn't that awesomely dreadful? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. Because there may well come a time when you harden your heart against God and he still speaks to you and there comes a point when he says, and now I've got nothing more to say. That's so dreadful. So awesome. But wherever the gospel is preached, in reality the Lord Jesus Christ is preaching. As we were praying earlier on, you shall call to the nations. What a privilege it is, whether it's one-to-one -one, or whether it's you as a pastor of a church or leading an evangelistic effort or whether it's you before thousands of people, the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing. But aren't you so frustrated that this particular passage never specifies what the gospel is? It kind of skirts around the area and kind of says it's free I know and the gospel is about repentance and faith why does it not specify it well let me tell you <clears throat> about the beginning of Romans which you will know off by heart Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 the apostle Paul says I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, we've been hearing about the gospel being proclaimed to the Greek, all the nations. 
And if you think about the parallel between Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 and these chapters, if chapter 55 is the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, chapter 54 just happens to be the proclamation of the gospel to the Jews. What's chapter 53 about? It's the gospel itself. It's the greatest explanation. It's the greatest analysis of the gospel that the Old Testament possesses. In four stanzas, each with three verses, set out, let me tell you so that you can commit it to memory. A price was paid. If you turn back in your Bibles to chapter 53, we're going to read just three verses. They will tell you what the price was. Why the gospel is always proclaimed as being free. This is what Isaiah taught in chapter 53 verses 4 to 6. He's looking forward to the one whom God has appointed to be the saviour of his people. He's the one who will answer to the Lamb of Passover. Because the only difference, as one person observed, between the Old and New Testament is this. We now know who the Passover Lamb is. Because our Lord was crucified at Passover. Listen to what Isaiah says about him on the cross. Surely... He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all isn't that such an amazing statement? Here he was on the cross. He wasn't nailed there merely by the Romans. And that was his agony. He was smitten by God and afflicted. On the cross, if you have the Passover lamb and the atonement lamb in your mind, in your, in your, in your imagination, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it wasn't a mistake. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. To put him to grief. There's the price of salvation. The incarnate son of God. Who humbled himself to obedience to death on a cross. 
where the great agony that he had in his own soul was that on him was laid the iniquity of us all. And there is nothing more to add to that. And if you were to say, yeah, but what price can I give? You get, there, there is no price. That is absolutely priceless. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Can you believe that in verse 7, in chapter 53, he was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And, and like a sheep before the shearers is silent. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. Because he was willing, in obedience to God, to be your saviour. The wages of sin is death. And he died your death. In order that, as the Apostle Paul would write, the free gift of God proclaimed to you by God himself is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. The price is paid. Come let us enter into all that God has done for us. Can you see how if there's nothing more to do. And you have a free and a full salvation. You're liberated into the sons and daughters of God. Led forth in joy. And peace. Nothing more to add. Christ did absolutely everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we prayed that prayer of the men of old, Sir, we would see Jesus. This evening as we have read and meditated upon your word we see the salvation purchased by his blood freely given we have seen the glory of Christ as the saviour of his people we pray therefore that the testimony of your Holy Spirit and the fruit produced within us would be love joy and peace. We ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen.